Jeff Hembrook. In 30 brief minutes, we'll give you something interesting to think about. Joining Jeff Frederick, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, is noted poet Julie Kane. With them are faculty from the Department of English, Theater, and Foreign Languages, Peter Grimes, Aaron Cole, and Richard Baylor. Now get ready for 30 brief minutes. Our faculty and students provide expertise, energy, and passion driving our region forward. Our commitment to Southeastern North Carolina has never been stronger through our teaching, our research, and our community outreach. I want to encourage you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. With your help, we will continue our impact for generations to come. You can donate online at uncp.edu slash give. Thanks again for listening. Now back to more. Start reading through any of the giants of Southern literature. Twain, Faulkner, O'Connor, Harper Lee. And you soon realize that there are a lot more giants than you remember. Barry Hanna's prose is unbelievable. Larry Brown might be my favorite. Don't leave Eudora Welty off the list. Tom Franklin will make you think, and Cormac McCarthy can take you someplace you didn't think you wanted to be. Could you leave Erskine Caldwell or Willie Morris or Alice Walker or James Dickey or Pat Conroy off any list? For all the historical reality of deprivation and doing without that Southerners have experienced for the better part of four centuries, we suffer from an abundance of good writers, meaningful poems, and soulful stories. Humorist Roy Blunt Jr. said it this way, I studied French in high school and German in college, and I once took a 24-hour crash course in Italian. English has by far the most words in it of any language. Our money might not be worth anything anymore, but the language is. I think that is true for Southerners who love language and the way words come together in deeply personal ways. The themes of the words that Southerners write and read cover many bases. Family, sense of place, race, religion, poverty, fatalism, the context of change, and the soul-crushing burden of conformity. Sometimes it takes 300 pages to wrap our minds around these topics. We are often convinced that you have to have been born, raised, bled, and baptized in these parts to understand it. Sometimes a non-Southerner like Jack Gilbert can take us there with a poem of just a few lines. Here's his poem, South. In the small towns along the river, nothing happens day after long day. Summer weeks stalled forever and long marriages always the same. Lives with only emergencies, births, and fishing for excitement. Then a ship comes out of the mist or comes around the bend carefully one morning in the rain, past the pines and shrubs, arrives on a hot, fragrant night, grandly, all lit up, gone two days later, leaving fury in its wake. In the end, Southerners stand foursquare in support of the premise that nobody does barbecue, debutante balls, college football, Sunday dinner on the grounds, or literature quite like folks who hail from or live permanently in the South. Southerners enjoy a freedom that they do not always bequeath to non-Southerners, namely the ability to express the inconsistencies, hypocrisies, conundrums, and riddles of the South 
without receiving the glare, stare, or punch in the mouth that a Yankee might elicit. And often the words we value most carry us to a place called home that for all its imperfections is unmatched in meaning. Consider these words from Harry Cruz. I went down the hallway and out the back porch and finally into the kitchen that was built at the very end of the house. The entire room was dominated by a huge, black, cast-iron stove with six eyes on its cooking surface. Directly across the room from the stove was the safe, a tall, square cabinet with wide doors covered with screen wire that was used to keep biscuits and fried meat and rice or almost any kind of food that had been recently cooked. I opened the safe, took a biscuit off a plate, and I punched a hole in it with my finger. Then with a jar of cane syrup, I poured the hole full, waited for it to soak in good, and then poured again. Those words that Cruz wrote carry us into a grandmother's or a mother's kitchen where other words were spilt year after year in between the family and the fried food and cast across the context of lives lived in Dixie. Joining me today to talk about the words and poetry and literature of the South is Julie Kane, poet, editor, poet laureate of Louisiana, and a professor emeritus at Northwestern Louisiana University. Julie has also been a Fulbright lecturer and was twice New Orleans Writer-in-Residence at Tulane University. Also joining me are the accomplished writers and scholars Peter Grimes, Aaron Cole, and Richard Vela. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So what are the critical hallmarks of Southern poetry and literature, both in terms of themes and style? I think you hit on um, many of the key things in your in your intro. Certainly family, but you know, not nuclear family. Family through the generations is a powerful mm-hmm. a powerful theme. History, a sense of you know the past being present in the present is you know is essential. It's not past. It's not dead. It's, it's exactly yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned a sense of place of lives being rooted to places. Race, race relations is important. Religion is is a, a key theme. Um, in terms of style, I think the oral tradition of literature has mm-hmm. had a tremendous, uh, you know, influence on written literature. Um, both, you know, the storytelling, narrative, you know, tradition, and um, certainly the African American church. You know, the the beauty of spoken language resonates in the written language. And I know I'm leaving out many things that my colleagues can can add. What about the rest of y'all? Mm-hmm. I would underscore that sense of place. Mm-hmm. For example, as I was thinking about this and thinking about Jeff's really good questions, I thought about, for example, someone like Robert Frost. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a poem like Mending Wall or, you know, After Apple Picking or any of a number of poems like that, uh, Stopping by Woodlands and I, it could happen almost any place. But with a lot of Southern poetry, you know exactly what the geography is. You know, many many of Julie's poems are about things in Louisiana, things in New Orleans and all that. And Robert Frost, though they may be sort of generally New England, it doesn't feel as much like if I went there I could see the things he's writing about in the way that I do feel that about her poems. Peter and Aaron, you guys both grew up in North Carolina. What what do you think is the the themes that hit to you about Southern Lit? I would have to say... um, 
the sense of place would be mm-hmm. the biggest one for me mm-hmm. as well. Um, mainly just because I, I mean, I've studied a little bit of creative writing with Ron Rash, and Ron uh-huh. Rash really <laughs> emphasizes that sense of place. And uh-huh. growing up in Appalachia and what it means to be in Appalachia, all of those things, everything from you know all the things we talked about from the the food itself the way that you know food mm-hmm. is prepared the language itself um everything down to the way that appalachia is pronounced is you know such a big thing for that um, um and the dialect itself but also kind of the the literal kind of natural sense of place um uh, i know my family grew up kind of growing tobacco and that's uh-huh. one of the one of their biggest um kind of sources of income for years and I think that there's something to say about um, Southern literature is some of the best Southern literature, I think, is embedded in that sense of the natural earth and the natural mm-hmm. place itself, mm-hmm. or at least some of the best Southern literature that I think is the best that I enjoy the most. And um, I think it's hard to get away from that whenever you live in this area right. in particular. So. And rural life as opposed to urban, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Peter? When I think of Southern literature, I often think of the grotesque, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the way it kind of represents hmm. some of the inequalities in Southern life. You know, I think of Flannery O'Connor, think of, um, you know, images that mix contradictions or, or um, images that, that would make society uncomfortable as they point out some of those inequalities. But the grotesque is something that maybe hasn't been part of my life so much, but it's definitely something I think of when I think of Southern literature. But there's that family story that we all have lurking back there somewhere that we're not right. sure if we want to, if we're proud of it or we're not proud of it, but it's lurking back there that sort of wraps around something mm-hmm. that seems out of character. Um, I'm very interested in the lives of ordinary Southerners and the way in which they coped with all of um the positive and negative connotations of what you guys have mentioned. What what draws you to specific pieces of literature about the South? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is, for me, very much the language. Often the language is rich or, you know, descriptive, whether it's about place or about food or about just capturing that oral style, um, mm-hmm. the long sentences the retelling of stories in different ways. That's something that I associate with it and really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Southern literature is something that you that you can enjoy read aloud, mm-hmm. I think. And it's not just the poetry, though we had good examples of that at the poetry readings yesterday. But generally speaking, Southern poets have a kind of an impact when it's read. And I think you can do the same thing with a lot of the prose. You can read Faulkner, you can read any number of the stories out loud and get caught up in, as you were suggesting, you know, the rhythm and sounds as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm always drawn to intensity in literature, too, especially poetry, emotional intensity, and that's so present in much Southern literature. And that certainly brings us back to those family concepts, mm-hmm. and those religious concepts that provide so much emotion and so much passion into yes. the decisions we make. Yes, passion, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, I think, uh, I think also to kind of go along with that, I think that that oral tradition kind of brings us back to those just like you were saying, those ideas of family and that sense of that family structure, um, and also the, the the amount of emotion that people have about the history itself. And we were talking about kind of that 
that the way that the history intertwines the good side and the bad side of that history and the way that history is told yeah. and mm-hmm. who tells that mm-hmm. history and the way in which that history is told. Um, and I keep thinking about the like the Appalachian poets uh, in particular, and I think about Frank X. Walker um, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the work that he has done with talking about kind of the the intense kind of divide between this sort of Southern hospitality mm-hmm. and also the uh, the kind of darker side of, you know, the repercussions of the Civil War in particular uh-huh. for Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are some of the things that draws me to it as well, um, thinking about those stories. Mm-hmm. And there's this middle ground between history and literature, between history and poetry in the South, filled with memory. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it becomes both the ways we choose to remember it or the way we want to remember it or the way we pass down a story so the fish, you know, every week gets a little bit bigger <laughs> and <laughs> catching of it gets a little bit harder. Absolutely. Uh, talk about the the authors and the poets that that shaped you, particularly um, to do more of what you have done. It's that's hard to say. There are there are writers that I was drawn to, you know, that I recognize some you know sensibility in. Um, I don't know if they influenced me so much as you know. I said, oh, you know, that feels the way I feel inside. Reading Carson McCullers' Member of the Wedding when I was mm-hmm. young, or Tennessee Williams' Streetcar Named Desire. I think as far as influencing my own poetry, I've had a strong influence from blues lyrics, from um, especially, you know, women blues singers like, you know, Bessie Smith. She didn't necessarily write all of them, but but just, you know, that sense of um, female agency, the um, wit, you know, the little vulgar streak in there. I love the, you know, play with language, uh, metaphors, you know, kitchen man and those <laughs> So, um, yeah, I guess there's this, it's a combination of kind of recognition and influence there. You know, a lot of my favorite writers aren't necessarily Southern writers. You know, I was really influenced by Kafka and by Joseph Heller and writers of the absurd. But I, I certainly, when I was young, paid a lot of attention to Thomas Wolfe, you know, writing mm-hmm. about Asheville, me growing up in mm-hmm. Asheville, thinking, oh, you can write about where you live. And I do love his mm-hmm. language and Look Homeward Angel. That was a big influence on me. Yeah, to, to tag along with that, I think that um, going back to kind of Ron Rash, um, also David Joy, um, those two writers in particular, that was the first time that I realized that someone could write about Western North Carolina mm-hmm. in a way that was not a negative stereotype all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the balance between kind of the negative aspects of the area and also that kind of communal aspect of family that we were talking about and the good deeds um, that come out of the area. Um, along with the kind of more violent tendencies, the more grotesque, like we were talking about. Um, And I think their work in particular has led me towards Southern literature more fully than anyone else, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, especially because they write in a more modern setting, um, but they they always show that they understand the past, and the past uh, past is always influencing the the present and the way that our culture is formed and and kind of dispersed, uh, you know, throughout the area. Mm My experience with it was actually in college. I went to school at the University of Dallas, and it was a heavy emphasis there. They saw themselves as descendants of the fugitive poets, Mm -hmm. 
And so all of that, you know, Alan Tate, all of those people, you know, John Coransom, and there was actually a gathering of them about the time I hit graduate school that they came there and actually saw and heard Robert Penn Warren and a bunch of these guys there. So it was sort of fascinating that way. And so there was that sense of of we belong to something, you know, Mm -hmm. even though I geographically and and in other ways was from a different, you know, background. But but I found it fascinating to be caught up in that. And then later on in the late 90s, I went to Sewanee, the, uh, the, the writing conference there, and was caught up some with Donald Justice and, and, and a bunch of other folks there in terms of the, the new formalism. Mm-hmm. And so both mm-hmm. of those movements, while they emphasize certain things in terms of subject matter and all that, both of them suggest a kind of way of shaping things. I remember Justice mm-hmm. talking particularly about you need to have a philosophy of language. You need to understand what you're trying to do that way and invaluable kinds of experiences, yeah. I think, with those. And just hearing them, just hearing people. Because, yeah. again, they had a lot of those poets and writers there. And certainly those mm-hmm. agrarians have this mission sense of let's hold on to Very what much. the past was and Absolutely. let's forestall all this yeah. change. It's really, really interesting time. It's funny in terms of mentors. I hadn't thought of that. But I went off, you know, I'm from the Northeast. I went off to Cornell in upstate New York. And who, in, you know, who did I study with? A.R. Ammons from North Carolina, <laughs> Bob Morgan from North Carolina, and Bill Matthews, whose MFA was from Chapel Hill, were my three uh-huh. mentors who really guided me as a, as a young poet. So, yeah. We're so, everywhere. We're everywhere. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I'll throw in my mentor, Paget Powell, down at the University of Florida. He was one of my literary heroes. Mm-hmm. Very playful, very fun. So how do you guys write? You know, when you're surrounded by all of this inspiration, how, what's your creative process like? Um. Oh, I don't want any young poets to hear this because when I write prose, I'm very disciplined. I have a schedule, you know, set times of day and keep at it even when the drafts are bad and, you know, I can go back and revise them. But poetry, I kind of have to be inspired or that draft is never going to be any good. So sometimes I go for long stretches without writing at all and sometimes I write in streaks. But, you know, basically in longhand still, online paper. Wow. And, you know, revising as I go. And then, you know, set it aside for a couple of weeks, go back. And then, you know, you can you can chip away at it. You can you can polish, mm-hmm. make little tweaks to it. But you can't really change the, you know, the framework of it once you, yeah. once you have it down. I was talking to my classes today about the fact that a lot of writing is just rewriting mm-hmm. and all that. I, I completed a long, long article uh, recently, and I told him, I said, I probably did 30 drafts of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, and it's not at all unusual for yeah. me to do that. And the same thing with the creative writing. I used to write quite a bit more. Uh, when I first came here and up through like the end of the 90s, I was writing and publishing a fair amount and all that. And my experience was a little bit like we are talking about. You know, it's, it's like something moves in effect, and you put something down on paper, and you don't always know where it came from. Right. But I couldn't start off with, okay, I want to write a poem about, or I want right. to write a story about. That never seemed to work. It always had to be something that just sort of stirred inside. Yes. And I don't mean to sound mystical about it, but that's just the way. <laughs> it it, that's just the way it worked. It is mystical. <laughs> it's always a good question. I, I remember hearing um, one writer, Kent Harif, talk about his process and how he would write with a cap or a toboggan pulled down over his eyes <laughs> so he couldn't see the computer screen and be thrown <laughs> off by the white space or something. <laughs> Richard Bausch talks about how you need to learn how to write anywhere at any time, you know, yeah. in the middle of a crowded 
living room with a squalling child. Um, and I think that's good advice because, you know, making time to write is definitely part of the challenge. But I prefer to write first thing in the morning when I'm half asleep mm-hmm. and not well thinking about the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need energy. I can't do that writing in the middle of the night thing that some people do. But, yeah, I, before I have any thoughts about other things I need to be doing, I, it, that helps me. Yeah. I tried working a schedule like that once, and it, it worked for a while and all that. I just, for other reasons, couldn't keep it up. But but I'd heard again about the thing about if you write the first couple hours. I think Hemingway did that when it's something like about first three or four hours in the morning he'd write, and then he'd stop and didn't write anymore the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. to write in the morning, too, and I like to be alone. Uh-huh. Right, and sometimes that means certain kinds of music, depending on what I'm yeah. trying to write or what mood I need to be in, or um, just sort of something ambient that sort of frames me in what 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 I'm trying to accomplish. I, one guy told me one time that you know every time he wrote something and he was confident in it, he celebrated with a glass of cognac. <laughs> I said, no, and I can't do that. And, um, and two, my gosh, how many bottles must you have every time you write a chapter that you uh, you like? But we all kind of have our own little rituals mm-hmm. that seem to work for us. Uh-huh. In that case, if he's sober, he's failing. I'm yeah. sure. Right, right. 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 Uh, so how do you read? If that's how you write, how do you read? Do you read in these frenetic bunches where you can't stop? Do you only read one thing at a time? Are you someone who's got, you know, dog-eared copies of six books going on at the same time? And and has that process changed over time for you? Yeah, so I I actually do my reading and writing in the same place in most cases. Mm -hmm. Um, My my wife has set up this amazing study in the home that we're at right now, and that's where Mm. I have I've surrounded myself with the books, the the posters, the CDs, all the artwork and things like that that really give me that kind of inspiration and put my mind at ease. Um, I close the door. I usually sit in my rolling chair and just read or write. Um, and I tend to just read vigorously at one book at a time, and uh, mm-hmm. unless it's something you know that I need for teaching or something like that. Um, my pleasure reading is one book at a time. I don't like to kind of divert my attention or kind of scatter my consciousness, I guess, across multiple narratives. I, I like to invest as much as I can in, in one text at a time. And then I do my writing in the exact same place, you know, and sometimes they overlap with one another. I'll read a couple chapters, and then I'll start writing afterwards. Um, it's just whenever it strikes me, and, you know, in that exact same space all the time. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well, since starting this job, I have discovered the beauty of uh, books on CD during mm-hmm. my commute. So most of my reading yeah. lately has been listening. And and I will also bring the book home and read a little bit at night. So I've got this kind of fast-paced listening, you know, not being able to stop, and then a little bit more careful during the evening. But it's taken me it's taken me several years since grad school to stop reading with a pencil, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, just agonizing over not missing, you know, any any you know technique. So that's been an a, an accomplishment in the last few years. Right, right. I guess I read differently depending on the genre. If it's a poetry book, I like to read it in one sitting. And since, you know, poetry collections are usually, you know, more than about 80 pages, Mm -hmm. some are more, but, you know, usually you can do it, you know, in a couple hours. They, You know, they tend to be unified, so if you break it up over days or, you know, or weeks, you're kind of missing, you know, that, that sense of how it all 
holds together. Um, but fiction, I really like, I, I treat fiction as sort of like a reward for getting everything done that I should have gotten done during the day. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like the last hour, you know, when I'm in bed, you know, with the covers up, you know, then that last hour I get to read. And I, when I have a good book going, I kind of hate when I'm getting close to the end mm-hmm. and I know I'm going to finish it. When I was young and reading Little Women, I didn't read the last page for weeks. You know, like I didn't, I didn't want it to end, and I, I, you know, kept myself no, 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 and then finally I gave in and read it. But, and then nonfiction usually have several books going, and you know, read part of one and hop to the next one and stick in a bookmark, and you know, it's, it's totally different. If I'm reading, you know, um, Southern history, then mm-hmm. I'm reading it with a pen and I'm reading it with a highlighter and I'm making notes on it. And maybe even on the front page, lists of pages that I think are particularly meaningful or important to me. If I get out of the history and I read some Southern literature, I read it with nothing. And I just try to race through it Mm -hmm. to enjoy it and to pull out the themes that matter to me as opposed to thinking about the nuance and, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, I better go check that footnote. Where does that person get that source? (laughs) Literature is sort of my ice cream for me Uh as well. Uh Mm-hmm. So, how do you like people to read what you write? You're looking at me. Yeah. Um, a lot of what I've been doing the last few years has been um, critical works of one kind or another, and all that. As I mentioned, I just finished a really long article, and that's going to be here in an anthology. And so, a lot of the things that that I've written have to do with specific kinds of topics, and I want them to be able to connect what I'm saying and what I'm trying to get them to understand about it with whatever it is that it is. So I've done, uh, the last thing I did was on a couple of movies and about the, mm-hmm. the Latin American cartels and things like that. A few years ago I wrote an article, for example, about um, John Huston's movies that take place in Mexico because that's an interest of mine as well and all that. In my own poetry and that sort of thing, for the most part, to be honest, if it didn't appear in a magazine, it didn't appear anywhere because I didn't, I've not put together a book. Shelby asked me about that just last night. So most of the time when people have heard my poetry, they actually physically heard it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I did a reading Mm -hmm. someplace. I used to do quite a few of them. Yeah, Yeah, as long as it gets read, I don't care (laughs) how they get it. (laughs) If they read a whole book or, you know, Google and find something on the Internet or find it in an anthology or textbook or something. I sent out links to all sorts of things of yours when we were preparing for this, for the, oh. your, your coming here and reading oh. and all that. But everybody has at least maybe a half dozen links to, you know, oh. your website, readings that you have done on YouTube and, you know, all kinds of places and things like that. So there's a lot of stuff out there. One one way I did love to to get to, I guess, hearers, not readers, was um, a couple of times Garrison Keillor read, you know, poems on oh, the Writer's yeah. Almanac. Mm-hmm. And then you always get emails from all around the country from, you know, people you know, little old ladies who heard it or, you know, people who heard it on their commute and like, oh, that happened to me too. Or, you know, that, that was really fun. I guess he's not, you know, doing any new, yeah. you know, new casts now. But Have you ever had somebody who read something you wrote and then got a hold of you in an email or some other way and they, uh-huh. they wanted to tell you about what they got out of what you wrote and you're like, I'm not sure that's what right, I was aiming right, for. Right, right. No, my readers are always remarkably accurate. <laughs> <laughs> if any of my readers laugh, that's you know my 
what I Typical. really love. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. from reading, that's the easiest way to tell they're enjoying it. You know, you can't really tell if they're, yeah. you know, being silently moved. But but I, I really, that's just a great compliment. Mm. Just burst out in the laughter for me. There really is something about reading and having a reaction from the audience. Yes. You know, something yes. that happens and all that. Yeah. Whether it's just a little light that shines in their eyes or an actual laughter or something. But that's an important ingredient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the internet can, you know, almost replicate that too. When someone mm-hmm. finds something and then tracks you down and emails you, right? You know, it's a little delayed, but. <laughs> so let's talk about favorite authors. And Aaron, you've mentioned several that were influential to you and, and who you really like. But who else really would would be on your must-have list? I would say, um, I mean, besides, you know, obviously. Uh, like I said, uh, Ron Rash, David Joy are a couple of the big ones. I would say uh, Daniel Woodrell is another one that I think uh, mm. he writes about the Ozarks, um, and he, he writes a very kind of gritty, you know, very, very down-to-earth sort of mm-hmm. uh, style that he has. Um, but uh, Tony Morrison, um, in any Morrison, has drawn me in like no other author has, I would say. Um, Beloved is one of my absolute favorite texts. Mm-hmm. Um, I go to it at least once a year. Um, just because I get so much out of that, um, and from a from a craft standpoint, I would say Flannery O'Connor. Um, mm-hmm. There's something about mm-hmm. the craft of anything that O'Connor does that is just it's it's pretty breathtaking. Um, because it is it's extremely concise. Everything seems thought out. It's it, it, everything seems meticulous. There's no wasted space. Um, yeah, anything O'Connor does. Um, I would say those would be some of the big ones for me. But Frank X. Walker, like I mentioned, Natasha Trethaway, yeah. um, absolutely. Um, you know, those are those are some of the big ones for me. I would say some of my favorite authors are are people like Dostoevsky and uh, um, Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller, um, O'Connor. In terms of some of the Southern literature I've enjoyed, I really, I really loved The Conjure Woman by Charles Waddell Chestnut. Mm. Mm. Uh, really fascinating work. You know, kind of taking the Uncle Remus tales and turning them on their head with trickster characters. That's that's something that I would recommend to any person looking into Southern literature. I think also Richard Ford is someone who mm-hmm. doesn't often write uh-huh. about the South, it seems like. He writes about New Jersey, but, but he's a Southerner, and I I'm just love his style. It's sort of philosophical daily meanderings mm-hmm. of a real estate agent or, or whomever. Mm-hmm. I'd have to kind of separate writers into two camps. The ones that I read when I was very young who really influenced me the most strongly and even if later in life I en- encountered writers who were better, you know, maybe they didn't, you know, it was too late to be an influence, but, but when I was young Robert Frost, you know, we had two poetry books in the house, we had collected poems by Frost, and we had Edna St. Vincent Millay lyrics, and I mm-hmm. read those two books a hundred times each and practically, you know, had them memorized. Um, Yeats, too, I encountered when I was young, yeah. the beauty of the language, the sense that your friends, you know, were somehow caught up in history, that, you know, that that you were living in history and, and you know, and could document it in your work, you know, that, that was essential. And, of course, you know, later in life, you know, certainly, you know, Baudelaire has, you know, has been um, mm-hmm. important to me. You mentioned Natasha Trethewey, magnificent 
poet. Um, Larkin, you know, is, is another one I encountered later in life. There, you know, there are just so many. Um, oh, I didn't say Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton in college mm -hmm. when I hit them. You know, I had no idea that you could write about women's experience. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that was okay in poetry, really, until... Until you know, well, I'd read Malay, but you know, quite, not quite the same. Not quite exactly. The same not quite the same. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that occurs to me, I was looking through an anthology, and and it's it's sad to see how older writers, for example, like Faulkner, seem to be disappearing mm -hmm. from these things. He's got, I think, two stories in this particular anthology, and uh, and same thing with Hemingway and a lot of other writers. And I think it's sad to see them disappearing. In in my in effect. I mean, because it used to be you had to read, you know, a novel mm -hmm. or two, you know, in a course to say you've been through a lit course and all that. In my own specific case, because my background is, is actually Mexican-American, um, I've gravitated toward a lot of Latin American writers and therefore connected with them in terms of, of the language for some of them that, that write in English, for example, in terms of the experience, in terms of others. But I, I carry on con uh, a correspondence for a while, for example, with Julia Alvarez, and there are others that I've had contact with and that I read their works on a specific, you know, schedule almost pretty mm -hmm. much. And uh, and I teach them pretty much every fall, for example, in one of my courses. So I think that they have been – I read through some of my things that I published a long time ago, and, and a lot of them take place in South Texas or Mexico or someplace like that in a way that I hadn't really thought about till I looked at, at Jeff's questions and began to think, oh, yeah, uh -huh. that's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's turn the question on its ear a little bit. So who's, who, who's an example of a writer that you know you're supposed to enjoy or you're supposed to have read, <laughs> and it just never worked for you? And I'll, I'll confess first, and Richard, you may be upset based on what, what you just said about that anthology. <clears throat> I've never enjoyed Faulkner. Um, you know, the sentences are paragraphs, and that can be fine, but it's a repetition of sort in my mind, and I never have really climbed into that writing and just said, it feels really good around here, and uh -huh. it's taken me on a, on a wonderful place, and so I have read half a dozen Faulkner, and I've, I've never really loved it, and I've always resisted trying to keep learning to love it, so mm -hmm. what about y'all? <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson? Perhaps mm. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I I remember you know having a love hate relationship with some books like Moby Dick, but in the end I loved Moby yeah. Dick. Um, I remember struggling through a hundred years of solitude in Spanish, but loved it in the end. Um, but I I'm trying to think of ones that leave me cold, and I uh -huh. come up with Ralph Waldo Emerson for some <laughs> reason. Yeah, I would say we. We touched on this yesterday, but um, Ezra Pound, I've, you know, the cantos, I've never been able to penetrate or never had the real desire to, and a piece on canto maybe, but yeah, you know, he, he was always held up as great, 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 my college education, I just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And my fellow new formalists would probably kill me for saying this, but um, I've never really, never really appreciated Richard Wilbur, who's just a god, you know, to, mm -hmm. to new formalists, I, you know, he... His vision of life is just too prettified for me, not real, you know, a little bit That's too... That's a good point, yeah. Artificial. For me, um, I I didn't have much of an appreciation for Faulkner either mm -hmm. until Light in August was the one that kind of turned me around. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I started kind of appreciating more of his work. Um, 
But I would say probably Cormac McCarthy, honestly, um, for me. Mm. Um, and the main reason is because I'm, I'm very, whenever I read, um, especially if, I read, if I'm reading a novel, um, I need good kind of strong dynamic characters. And a lot of his male characters are extremely dynamic and strong, but I, I, I fail to think of a single female character that he has written in a way that seemed rounded and seemed real. Um, and I know that's a criticism that, that some people I've talked to have had of McCarthy in the past, and I think that, for me, that holds true, and I've never been able to really dig into his work and enjoy it on that level because of that. Um, it felt like a very kind of one-sided story um, every time I've read anything he's written. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's not from the South that really had a strong influence on me was Thoreau. Um, to the extent that at one point I went ahead and and grew a garden in the vacant lot next to us (laughs) and all that, sort of in homage to and all that. And um, there was just something about the way that he approached life that I kind of liked. Even when I found out things that his life wasn't really the way it was Mm -hmm. written up to be and all that, I still thought, still, that's an interesting way to construct a life. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of liked that about it. But a lot of the writers I, I approached more sort of from, from an intellectual and an emotional, so Ralph Waldo Emerson, folks like that, it's more like, okay, I'm interested in that idea. It may take forever to get through it, but I'm interested in that idea. And so there's a split like that that I feel sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you all for being a part of this, to Aaron and to Peter, to Julie and to Richard. Join us next time on 30 Brave Minutes. Today's podcast was edited by Richard Gay and transcribed by Janet Gentis. Theme music created by Riley Morton. This content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the College of Arts and Sciences. It is to be used for educational and non-commercial purposes only and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of authorized representatives of UNCP. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNCP or any of its subsidiary programs, schools, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure that information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presenting material makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to advances in research, technology, or industry standards. Thanks for listening, and go Braves! Good job, everybody!